Thanks, Ken.
morning. Good to see you all this morning. Is it November or did I misplace a month? I went out for a little walk this morning and my shirt was wet. It was so hot. Good to see you all. Um, if you look at your announcements, um, again, offerings in the, uh, in the offering box. Andrea's contact number, Days of Praise, Acts of Facts are here. Please make use of those. Uh, read them, pass them out. Um, one thing that's not in there, um, we're going to be updating special dates um, for our bulletin needs. So um, there's, a, there's a page posted out here on the helps board, and if you could kind of fill out maybe birthdays and anniversaries so that we can update that, that would be great. Note um, a prayer list. I continue to pray for those um, on that list. Many needs there. Uh, have I missed anything this morning? All right, then I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation. That's Psalm 9. Read Psalm 9.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. George, you popped right up there this morning. We open for us. Thanks. You take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 17, number 17 in the brown. have a favorite hymn this morning I thought did I see a hand it did see a hand yes Dale 572 in the brown America the beautiful any particular reason this morning absolutely Five seven two in the brown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Our scripture reading this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Do I have a reader today? I guess I'll do it, that'd be great. Let me get a Bible. Second Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Yes, that God would bless his word. All right, slight change in the, what's written in the bulletin. Um, if you grab your blue Trinity hymnals, most of the pews, because of last Sunday, should have a blue Trinity. If you don't, um, we'll try and get you one. I have one up here. They're extra in the back. Um, Hannah, no? Okay. Um, the site in Jillian, there's an extra one over there. There you go. <laughs> Ken needs one up here. Oh, and there, Jeff and Jason. <laughs> So it's number 680 in the, in the blue. So the, the, the hymn was in the brown, but we don't know the tune to that one. We know the tune to the one in 680. That's what I've been told, that we know the tune. <laughs> oh, he has one. Yeah, they changed the words in the brown one, too. The blue one's just better. But So 680. Do you have that, Pastor? So we supposedly know this one. We'll see. The piano player knows this one, so this is good. <laughs> That's what matters most. All right.
use of water. Our, our scripture text this morning is 2 Timothy 4. We'll be looking primarily at the first eight verses. At present in our study on biblical worship, we're considering the elements or the essentials of public worship. We've already dealt with a couple of them. Public prayer. Secondly, the public reading of the scriptures. You know, in the past, before the printing press, the Bible was hand-copied by men called scribes. It was a painstaking endeavor, as you can imagine. Only the very wealthy or those in ministry could obtain copies of the scripture, which the ministers would then read aloud to gathered people. Timothy was charged by Paul to devote himself to, here it is in the text, the public reading of the scriptures. And then, historically, instruction would follow the passage that was just read to all of the people. The benefit for our day is that everyone who wants to can own a Bible. At least in America and in New England and other or in England and other places around the world. You can go into almost any store, box store, not not just a Bible bookstore, but any box store, Walmart, Myers, whatever, and you can buy yourself a, a Bible. The benefits of our day when everyone can own a Bible if they choose is this. The hearing of the reading causes us to remember that God has spoken and it is his spoken word that comprises the written word. You have to begin somewhere. God has spoken. Secondly, hearing the public reading of God's word verifies the teaching of God's ministers. It's that Berean spirit that we see in the book of Acts. Paul spoke, Silas spoke, Timothy spoke. The Bereans gathered to see if what was spoken agreed with what was written. And that's, we, sh- we should all do that. Mentally or physically to keep me on track, keep any minister on track, or at least in terms of what we're going to allow to go into our psyche and teach us. Not everybody that's on television and not everyone that's on the radio It's preaching the gospel. Secondly, hearing the public reading of God's word verifies the spirit, the teaching of God's ministers. Thirdly, hearing the audible and public proclamation of the scriptures instills saving faith in the loss. Faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing by the word of God. That's God's means of enabling people to respond to the gospel message and respond we must. Jesus put it this way. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who knocks the door will be opened. 
Enter through the narrow gate, for who wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7, verse 7 and 5. Well, in today's study, it directs our thoughts to the third and fourth element of public worship, namely the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word. And we'll make the distinction as we go. As we come to God's word, let's ask for his enablement. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us that we might indeed understand what the Spirit has divinely inspired and have written centuries ago through your prophets and apostles. Bless these truths to our heart. Stir us into thinking about spiritual things. It's necessary for our soul. It's necessary for our salvation. It's necessary for our growth in grace. So feed us, Lord, from your word we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at the elements of worship, and I'm primarily concentrating on two things, the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word. Paul's charge to his protege, Timothy, was this, verse 2. Preach the word. Pretty simple statement. Preach the word, Timothy. Timothy was a young Christian that Paul met on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. It says there he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, <coughs> whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Notice the contrast. The brothers of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Acts 16, the first five verses. From that time on, Paul uh, became the spiritual mentor to young Timothy, who grew in knowledge and wisdom in the scriptures under the tutelage of the apostles. And Timothy became so adept at ministry that Paul sent him to Corinth with this endorsement. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 17. We ought to all be able to say that, that our life agrees with what we teach, shouldn't it? Not just, it's not just for ministers. Now, if you know anything about the Church of Corinth, you know that with the corruption, the politics, the sin present there, 
it would be no place to send a rookie. By this time, Timothy was well trained in the scriptures. As our text indicates, verse 2, he had the knowledge and capability to use God's word to correct, to rebuke, to encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Though young in comparison to Paul, his senior, Paul instructed him in, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, to preaching, and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12 and following. Now it is true that Paul had a number of co-workers, including women, you want to see the women, the list of them, they're in Romans 16. They're listed there. But among the men, there was Luke, who was a physician, you remember. There was Silas. There was Titus, even John Mark for a time. But there was a special affinity for Timothy, whom he called, My son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Can we have a special affinity for another brother or sister in Christ? Obviously. See, well, you got to love them all the same. Eh, it doesn't say that. We love, yes, but we can have a special affinity or friendship or compassion or enablement with one another that is unique in itself. My son whom I love, he says. I'm guessing here that because Timothy's biological father was a Greek, that he was an unbeliever, that he took little interest in the spiritual teaching of his son. Just the opposite for his Jewish mother and grandmother. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. You know, often in uh, mixed marriages, where you have one that's saved among the married couple and one who is not, very hard going and usually it's the dad who's dragging his feet spiritually because and I think it's it's because of pride the men do not want to admit that there is a dimension of knowledge that they know nothing about and if the wife is the believer Bullheaded and stubborn husbands refuse to learn of God through them. Now that's just my observation. It's just that 40 some years of ministry indicates to me. In the providence of God, young Timothy was adopted. I'm going to say that he was adopted spiritually by the Apostle Paul, who became like a father to him 
and his spiritual mentor. Titus was another such man. Paul's letter to Timothy, there's two letters, first and second, and his letter to Titus have been designated as the pastoral epistles. Epistle means a letter. And they've been designated the pastoral epistle or letters because in them we are given instructions to candidates for the pastorate by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. What an astonishing thing to be taught, mentored, encouraged, corrected by Jesus' own hand-picked apostles. No present day, no past day seminary has ever had such solid, thorough teachers as we find in the Apostle Paul and the biblical authors. But the beauty of this is having the written record of Paul's instruction to these men concerning ministry, concerning the worship of God, or whatever subject. We pastors and all who aspire to be teachers of the gospel may, as it were, sit in the school of learning taught by the Apostle Paul. We can do this and trust this as being appropriate and reverent Relevant, excuse me, for today's ministry because the word which Paul enjoined Timothy to preach is the word of the living and unchanging God. God's own testimony is this. He's talking about himself. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who desired, declared it from the distant past? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say to me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. All of that from Isaiah 45, verse 21 and following. Some might ask, Well, what about the possibility that God has changed his mind? And along with that, maybe his message. Well, to ask such a thing is to suggest that God is too much like us. We change our minds because we don't know everything there is to know. Past, present, future. So we adapt. If we make a decision that proves to be folly... Wisdom and humility demand that we change our minds, right? And if we don't, the foolish course of conduct we have chosen will lead to our own destruction or hurt. God says of himself, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what's still to come. I do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from far off land a man to fulfill my purpose, 
What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 10 and 11. Or again, Balak, an enemy of Israel, by the way, hired Balaam, a prophet, to call down a curse on Israel. But as God would have it, Balaam called down a blessing instead. You remember that story. His explanation to Balak, because Balak was really angry with him, that, hey, I didn't hire you to bless Israel. I hired you to curse them. But Balak had done what God had said. And here's his explanation. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot change it. I like that. Numbers Numbers 23, 19 and 20. What God has spoken, no man can change. And by the way, it is because God does not change his mind ever that he can say through Paul to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. His word is his will declared on the written pages of scripture. And Timothy, along with all true gospel ministers, must preach it without tampering. And if we do tamper, we proclaim ourselves better and wiser than God, and we become false preachers, of which there are many in our own society and throughout the world. So we're called to preach. We're called to teach. What's the difference between preaching and teaching? Preaching. What's that? Well, it's the Greek word caruso, and it means to proclaim after the manner of a herald. Always with a suggestion of formality, gravity, and an authority that must be listened to and obeyed to proclaim openly something that has been done. In the case of the gospel, it's something that God has done. In preaching, we just tell it forth. We learn from this. There's a tremendous cause to be objective. Who can be objective like that? Recently, we had a Supreme Court nomination, actually a vote for Amy Covey Barrett. And if you watch the hearing, I did watch the hearing for her. And the the key thought that kept coming up in all the discussion was, can you be objective? Objective. You want a judge to be objective. And she was being questioned on whether she could be objective. How so? Because she's a conservative constitutionalist. Vowing to interpret the law as written only in the Constitution. Now, 
would to God we had all judges like that, right? Not putting her own spin on the text, but taking it literally as written by our forefathers. We learn from this that the message given is not original to the speaker. No, the speaker is speaking for another. He or she is just the publisher or spokesperson for the message, but the message is of another, not themselves. English Dictionary says, one that conveys news or proclaims, hence an announcer. One who actively promotes or advocates, hence an exponent. God's ministers are both. They announce like a herald, but secondly, what they announce, they promote, and thus they become an exponent of what they are teaching. Behind this, of course, is the reality that they are speaking for another, in this case God, and so it is not their prerogative to interject their own ideas into the message given forth, nor to alter it, to the liking of the hearer, and paramount to the word itself, we must be believers or advocates advocates for what we preach. So, true to what God declares in the word, yes, and believers ourselves in what God has said in his word. Say, well, don't all preachers believe, don't, don't they all function that way? Just turn your TV on and check it out. You'll see that they do not. And it is as men depart from these two principles of preaching that heresy consequence con- comes about and great harm occurs on the hearer. In verse 3, Paul warns, for the time will come. So he's doing a little predicting here. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And turn aside to myths, to fiction. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. Peter says essentially the same thing. He says, but there were apostles, excuse me, there were in the past also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, and many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. 
say, oh, they wouldn't do that, would they? Yeah. We need to listen, maybe, to some of the TV and radio preachers. In their greed, they will, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. 2 Peter 2, verse three, verses 1 through 3. Peter took his caution from the wicked prophets of the Old Testament times, who, in the name of God, taught their own spin on things. That's why they were called false prophets. Jeremiah reported, Ah, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, the people, You will not see the sword or famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet of God, but he's speaking about some other kind of prophets that are out there. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them. I have not appointed them. I have not spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. These same prophets will perish by sword and by famine. Jeremiah 14, verse 13 through 15. They're going to find out that their lies are going to come back on their own head. In short, these prophets in Jeremiah's day were men of the ministry who had no endorsement from God, simply put. They were doing their own thing for greed, for prestige, or some other carnal reason. They became ministers who had the audacity to teach the delusions of their own minds as though such were God's word. And the people ate it up. That's that's the other side of the coin. They ate it up. And they ate it up because Jeremiah's true message of coming famine and sword and was so unpleasant to hear they didn't want to hear it so the people opted for teachers as paul describes in verse 3 of our text for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. Now I've got to tell you that no one likes to hear negative messages. God's ministers do not relish the idea of proclaiming judgment. But as heralds, 
We don't get to pick and choose what to declare. We must say it as it is, even if the truth hurts or even if the truth is disturbing. Oh, and by the way, there is healing in truth, but destruction in lies. Jesus put it this way, to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you hold if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. John 8, verse 31 32. Think about this. When the surgeon says to you, there's only one way to destroy the cancer that's eating away at your kidney... I'm going to have to cut out that diseased organ. But you'll be okay because you have two kidneys. But the one that's diseased, I'm going to have to cut out. And you will have a three-month recovery period, but you will live. It won't be easy, but you can do it. Now, would you rather hear the truth or would you prefer to hear him say, the kind of cancer you have is very slow growing. You can likely live for many years with no ill effects. To ease your pain, I can treat you with Vicodin. This latter statement may indeed be more soothing to the ears, may be pleasant to hear, but it's deadly counsel, isn't it? Because managing pain is not the same as curing the source of the pain. God's word, because it is God's word, always presents the truth And like the surgeon's scalpel, Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living, it is active, sharper than any double-edged sword, scalpel. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And brethren, it is that judgment or that conviction God's word that exposes sinful thoughts and sinful actions which frees people from deluding themselves with placebos that numb the mind but never get to the root of the real problem. So my question is, do you want to be numbed or set free? Placated, smoothed, cajoled, or forgiven and reconciled to God. There are plenty of false preachers around peddling their stories and their wicked interpretations of heaven and hell that can make you feel good about their message. But if you swallow the poison they peddle, you will die. You will die. 
God's preachers, because they are God's, are compelled as announcers and exponents of the gospel of God to tell you the truth that will set you free from sin and the impending wrath of God. I'm encouraging you to opt for that. Preaching, heralding forth. Okay, what about teaching? Well, we heard this in Paul's charge to Timothy as well, that we studied in 1 Timothy 4 a week ago. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. That we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, yes, to preaching, yes, and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4, the first, verses 9 through 13. The verb teach here is the Greek term didasko. And it means to use dialogue or discussion to impart knowledge. The noun form is didaskalia, that which is taught, the doctrine or the precepts which are taught. These Greek words have the same prefix. You could hear it. They both begin with didask. Didasko, to teach, didaskalia, what is taught. And this prefix is carried over into English in the word didactic. An adjective describing teaching, especially of moral nature. What is the distinction? Well, in preaching, there is a declaration of the subject matter with little or no response from the audience. You just listen. The subject matter is not up for debate. Because the material given forth is God's word, not the preacher's word. The Old Testament formula for preaching and proclaiming. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says. says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Exodus 10, verse 3. No be debate. Just Pharaoh, just do it. As you know, he refused to listen, and God sent locusts to devour the vegetation and every plague thereafter. It happened with every promised plague. Jeremiah put it this way, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah 28, verse 2. Ezekiel, same thing. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Ezekiel 5, verse 8. Even the little prophet Amos. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Amos 5, verse 4. Now, none of these proclamations were up for debate. God was simply making a declaration of his intention 
upon his sinful people, and that was final. Preaching today ought to be saturated with, this is what the Lord says. But there's no equivocation on what God is saying. But that only happens when men adhere to the scriptures alone. As Timothy was told, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Unfortunately, lying preachers like lying prophets of old tell stories they have made up. And they teach as though truth those stories, but the figments of their own imagination is all that you're getting. So there is debate, and rightly so. We're living the days of Jeremiah all over again. From the least to the greatest, writes he, and all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike. They all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there's no peace. Jeremiah 6, verse 13 and 14. Preaching, if it is the heralding forth of God's word, should be received with faith and action. God declaring his will. Now with teaching, which is the other side of the coin, there is discussion. There is debate because the speaker, be he the preacher or another believer with the gift of teaching, is attempting to answer sincere questions posed by the listener. That's the goal in teaching. It's to clarify. In many cases, what the preacher has declared. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books, calls himself the preacher. Why does he call himself that? Because he's declaring what the word of God is. When we have a Bible school, teachers, children's church, worship services, people conducting Bible studies in their homes, which we have going on, all meant to be teaching of God's Word. But let me say this, that teaching doesn't mean we can be sloppy about content. Must still be biblical. Paul again to Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. Second Timothy two two. Titus was told, "You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine." Titus two verse one. The pattern was Paul. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures 
we might have hope, Romans 15, verse 4. That was Paul's principle. And Jesus has made this promise to us all. You shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Well, you got to hear the truth in order for that to be viable. Now, what's the obligation of those who preach and teach God's word? Number one, you need to be prepared in season and out of season. We're told that. What's that mean? The reference to seasons is a farming analogy with a little twist. For example, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. Ecclesiastes 3.2. Jesus told the account of a farmer who sowed seed in his land. And he explained when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is what the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed and fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once he receives it with joy. But since he has no road, no root, he lasts only a very short time. Hmm. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. We call these guys fair-weather Christians. Faithful for a while, as long as everything is copacetic. Let a little trouble come because of their faith. They'll ditch the faith in a hurry. Jesus goes on, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who receives the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Matthew 13, verse 19 and following. There's a lot of lessons here, aren't there? Different soils stand for different people who respond differently to the gospel when they hear it. Satan is present to snatch away any good that might come from the message. But consider, too, that this farmer sowed the seed of, go- of the gospel indiscriminately. What do I mean? I mean he did not simply sow seed on good soil. But anywhere and everywhere. In season and out of season. Where convenient and likely to yield a crop. And where it would be inconvenient, which humanly speaking, it might be considered a waste of good seed. Brethren, the gospel is to be broadcast to all. And you do not know the condition of men's hearts. You do not know what God will do with the word of God. The results are God's. They're not yours. They're not mine. Our task is to give it forth. Paul says that the word of God is also to correct and rebuke. 
we read today a number of pronouncements from the prophet Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and so on, that I am sure the people of Israel did not appreciate hearing. In fact, for that very reason, false prophets arose to say to the people, Oh, peace, peace, when there was nothing like peace around. What was on the horizon was famine and sword. From God's true prophet, Jeremiah. Let me just say that pastors are people too. We want to be liked. We want to be well thought of by our audience. But God's truth cannot be altered from what he has said if we are to be faithful to him. There's an account in 1 Kings 22 in which Ahab of Israel, king, conferred with King Jehoshaphat of Judah, the southern kingdom, to form an alliance against the king of Aram, pagan king, who had been raiding the borders of Israel for three years. Northern border, Ahab's region, king of Aram, coming across the border, raiding. Three years has been going on. Jehoshaphat, the southern king in Israel, agreed to an alliance, but first he wanted to inquire of God if he should do it. That's always wise. Going to go on a new venture? Inquire of God to see if you should do it. Ahab summoned his 400 prophets. Remember, Ahab is... Not exactly a true believer in Jehovah. He summoned his 400 prophets and to a man, think about this, 400 prophets to a man said the same thing. Oh yeah, you should go up against the king of Aram for the Lord will give it into your hands. 1 Kings 22 verse 6. All speaking one voice. Jehoshaphat had the godly discernment to sense that these prophets were simply paid lackeys of the king. And so he asked the question if there was, is there a prophet of the Lord available? Hmm. All these people, do you have, where's, is there a prophet of the Lord available that we could talk to? Listen to the response. The king of Israel answered, Jehoshaphat, eh, there is still one man through whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat responded, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. 1 Kings 22, verse 8. Long story short, Micaiah was summoned. He was pressured by those who summoned him. Look, 
they said. As one man, the other prophets are all predicting success for the king. So let your word agree with their word and speak favorably. And you think politics is something new? <laughs> but Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. That's the voice of a true prophet. Well, <laughs> you probably guessed it, Micaiah. Verse 23 says, The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. And Ahab went ballistic. Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, only bad? And he consigned, consigned Micaiah to a prison dungeon with water and bread for his food, for his sustenance. You see, Ahab could not handle the rebuke. He could not handle the correction that Micaiah brought to the lies of the false prophets who were paid to please, paid to please, paid to please. Well, Ahab lost his life in the battle. And Jehoshaphat, nearly so. Preachers and teachers of the gospel must be true to God's word, even if it rebukes, even if it brings correction to sinful behavior. It's the only way to please God and do the people good. So Timothy is told, look, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. He went on to say, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. There are two Greek words here put together to make one word. It's parakaleo, para meaning alongside, and kaleo means to call. So to call someone alongside of someone for the purpose of lifting them up by entreating them to walk with you out of the darkness into the light and it gives hope to the downtrodden. Noun form is paraclete. It's used of the Holy Spirit to whom Jesus promised, I will give, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter or counselor. Pericletas, that he may abide with you forever. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said to you. John 14, verse 16 and verse 26. This is a task for all of us, not just for preachers and teachers, but to encourage one another daily. So long as it's called a day, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3, verse 13. From where are we to get the material for encouragement? 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15 verse 4. We encourage people not by stories we have made up but by thus saith the Lord. Because when God speaks whether it's about the past or the present or the future, you're getting the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Make, make us people of the word. We're very fortunate to live in a day when we can have our own personal copy of the scriptures. May we make use of those scriptures. Deliver us from the stories that are made up. Boy, I'm so sick of the stories that are made up by TV preachers and the like. Must just hear a word from you. And that's like saying that you haven't told us all that we need to know, that we have to go searching for fiction somewhere. Please help us to see it's the truth that sets us free. And you said it in your high priestly prayer. Thy word, O God, thy word is truth. Thy word. Say it another way. God is not a liar like men. He tells us the truth. The truth can hurt us. It can encourage us. It can confront us with our sin. It can do a lot of things, but it's still the truth of God. And that's far better than lies and false prophecies. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Savior, the God of truth, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. From Trinity, our closing hymn is 390, 390 in Trinity. What is it? Is it 590? I can't read my own printing. 590. Shall we stand to sing?
hymn by Habergal. Our Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the fact that you deal so mercifully with us in the gospel. You declare to us the truth about our sinfulness and about our Savior that can be ours through faith. If we won't accept the fact that we're sinners, we're not going to accept the need for a Savior. The two go together. And that's where most people are today. In their heart of hearts, they know that they're sinners. But they make excuses. They think of themselves as not quite so bad as to deserve hell. But when I read in the book of Revelation that even telling a lie qualifies a person for hell's fire, that's a standard we don't readily recognize. But it's your standard, which is perfection. And we don't match up to it. So lies, deception, oh, many, many other kinds of sins, lusts. We're guilty, 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 guilty. And we need a Savior. And you're the only Savior the world is going to get. I'm so thankful you came. I'm anticipating that you're coming again, which you have promised to do. You kept your first promise. You came. I know you're going to keep the second promise. You're going to come again. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we did with you. How we responded. I pray that all of us here will be found confessing our sins and crying out to Christ, O oh, Jesus, be my Savior. And we pray this in the name of of the Savior for our good and your glory. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.